think to understand really what's going on here in this gospel, we need to put in a bit of context. Jesus has just been doing some amazing miracles. Just before this, he's raised Lazarus from the dead. And the whole of that region around Jerusalem has just gone crazy because that's not normal. And they, and they can see Lazarus. They know he was in the tomb for four days. Jesus has then triumphantly entered into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Now that sounds fairly ordinary, but for the Jewish people, that's a little bit like entering into the city with a presidential motorcade. The whole symbolism says, I'm claiming to be the king. You know, in the same way, if you were to drive into the city in a black limousine with secret service people running alongside and motorbikes, people would stop and think, you're trying to say something about who you are. You know, all the prophecies in the Old Testament said, your king is going to come riding on a donkey. And so the whole city has just kind of exploded in this massive hype. Everyone's laying down palm branches and singing Hosanna in the highest. And it even says, I mean, the Pharisees are standing back saying, we've lost it. There's no way we can get this back anymore. Like they've all gone after him. And at this point, we've got this strange encounter. There's a couple of Greeks who are in the crowd. And they come up and approach Philip. And then Philip goes to talk to Andrew. And then Andrew and Philip go together to talk to Jesus. Now, we, we've got no idea what these Greeks were wanting. But it was obviously an awkward enough proposition that even the apostles are like, you tell him, no, you tell him, no, you tell him. Let's go together, okay. Now, taking quite a bit of artistic license here and reading into this, but you could almost imagine these Greeks are there looking at this and just thinking, this is huge. This guy's amazing. You know, and you can imagine Andrew, in the midst of all this celebration, sort of sidling up next to Jesus saying, um, sorry to interrupt, but a couple of guys here, they're really impressed by you. You know, the preaching, the miracles, particularly that raising of the dead thing last week. They reckon this could go global. You know, they're, they're talking like international speaking tour, you know, all across Asia Minor. I think they want to call it like a TED Talk or something, which I think they said stood for like Thessalonica, Ephesus and the Diaspora, like something like that. Um, but they, they want to take this out to the whole world, you know, and... They kind of said, you know, if, if things go well, we could be walking into Rome in a couple of years, you know, in the same way. Now, once again, a lot of artistic license, but they kind of go up and say, Look, these guys want to talk to you. Now, initially, Jesus is probably sounds like he's on their wavelength because he's saying, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. And they're like, yes, that's it. That's what this guy wants. They, they want you to be glorified. But at that point, Jesus goes off in this whole different tangent. You know, if you've ever had a conversation where it feels like you're trying to talk to someone and they're monologuing, you know, and they're just in a different place altogether, that's a little bit what this is like, where it's like Jesus is lost in his own little world here. Everyone else is celebrating his earthly glory and the miracles and the fact that this is our chance for liberation When I read this, I just imagine Jesus staring off into the distance because he's just thinking something different. 
And this is where he starts saying, you know, unless a wheat grain falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single grain. But if it dies, it yields a rich harvest. You know, Andrew and Philip would be like, uh, hang on, come back to the conversation. We're talking about this. But I think this is where you start to see what's actually going on in the mind of Christ in this final week. He's aware that there's a different story happening. It's not the story of power and influence. It's not even the story of who can present the best ideology, who can present the best ideas to save the world. What Jesus has come to become aware of here is that, in a sense, he's going to achieve more by his death than he will by his life. And this is the bit that the apostles can't get. And I think this is what we can't get either. No matter how many times we celebrate the mystery of Easter year after year after year, we still think the way the apostles were thinking. Let's get more influence, more power. Let's get more infiltrated into the government or the social systems and spread this message and more ministry. And yet Christ is aware that there's a different battle really underpinning all of this. This is where, just to try and link these readings together, the letter to the Hebrews that we heard, I think is sort of the key to start to open this mystery. Very often in the New Testament, we have the, the writers trying to explain how we saved. You know, at some points they say we're saved by the suffering of Christ. At some points it suggests that we're saved because of the price that he paid to ransom us from sin and death. The letter to the Hebrews suggests that it was obedience that saved us. And this is where it takes us right back to the beginning of the whole story. Because it was disobedience that put us in the position we're in now. It was because Adam and Eve did not trust God. God basically said, look, trust me, I'm going to give you everything you need. And they didn't trust. They wanted more. They wanted to be able to do it their way, in their own time. And, and this is what we've done ever since. I will try and create my paradise. I will try and steal it or, or form it myself. And it's that fundamental disobedience which is at the heart of all the problems of the world. And so Christ is now here as the new Adam. Redeeming the world by saying yes where Adam said no. By trusting when there is absolutely no reason to trust. Yeah, Adam was given a pretty simple command. You can have everything except that tree. Whereas Jesus is now put in a position of losing everything. All this ministry, all this stuff he's developed, all these people he's worked with, in the space of this next week, it's all going to vanish. Even his disciples are going to disappear. You know, once again, we're so used to the story, I don't think we quite get in touch with perhaps the, the level of despair or, or doubt even that, that, that Jesus gets to. Where he finds all of this work, because like, he wants to save this world. He, he wants to save the world much more than you do. He sees the violence. He sees the pain. This is the one chance to do something. And he knows, I'm not going to be able to do it. It's like in his prayer, as he's been praying to the Father, he realises that 
Where this is going is where it looks like everything's going to crumble around him. Will you trust? Will you still follow? Will you still trust that the Father is good, even when it looks like everything is going to go bad? And I think this is the place where Jesus is at at the moment. You know, he's lost in this little world of his own because he's trying to understand, how does this work? You know, unless a wheat grain falls to the ground and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears fruit. Anyone who, loses his, anyone who loves his life loses it. Anyone who hates his life in this world will keep it for the eternal life. This is where he realises that I need to go on this journey. I need to trust the Father to the point of death, to the point of being in the tomb for three days and trust that somehow God knows what he's doing. Somehow the Father is going to make this good. And I would say this is what belief actually looks like. I think what Jesus is doing here is saying this is what it means to trust. This is what it means to believe. It's not just confessing that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Saviour. It's not just sticking a nice bumper sticker on the back of your car. It's it's saying I'm going to trust God when it makes no sense at all. When everything is potentially going to be taken away from me. If my life is cut short, if my... My life is cut down by illness. Whatever it is, it's in God's hands. I think that's the point where our faith is so tested, but that's, that's where Jesus is calling us to. You know, as he says, if a man serves me, he must follow me, and wherever I am, my servant will be there too. You know, if I'm in that place of absolute doubt and darkness and just clinging on with trust, that's where my servant will be. This is what has saved us. This is, this is where that original damage has started to be healed. And it continues to be healed in us every day that we make the same decision. Every day that we say, look, I'm going to be faithful to my calling when everything within me is screaming to stop. You know, when everything in me says, this is not rational, this is not normal, we need to fight against this, to be able to say, Lord, into your hands I commend my spirit. I trust you. And I'd suggest, coming back to the first reading from the prophet Jeremiah, this is speaking about the, the new covenant that God was going to present to us. This covenant where we would have the law written deeply on our hearts. We hear this word covenant again and again and I don't think we even stop to think what it means. The, the, the whole thing of a covenant is a, it's a relationship. A contract is an exchange of goods. A covenant is an exchange of persons. Hence like your marriage covenant. I give myself to you, you give yourself to me. But this is the new covenant that's being formed. God is saying, I want to enter into a relationship where I give myself to you in absolute faithfulness. I will be with you. I'll provide for you. I'll be there for you. Will you give yourself to me? And I think this is is where Christ is calling us to follow in a really deep way. Once again, not just with words, not just with bumper stickers, whatever. But to actually follow to the point where I'm able to say, God, my life is yours. And whatever that means. It's yours. I completely give it to you. You're know, St. Ignatius Loyola, 
focused a lot on this and he basically said we need to get to a place where we can really believe that the only reason we're here is for God. I exist to praise and worship God, to do his will. And that means I should be completely surrendered to whatever God gives me. Because if it glorifies God, let it be so. And so I shouldn't be clinging on to the idea of a long life instead of a short life or being healthy instead of being sick or being wealthy instead of poor. To be really surrendered means to say, God, your will be done. Now that's hard. <laughs> you know, so often when I talk to people about that part of what Ignatius talks, what he teaches, everyone loves it up to a point, but when they get to that last bit of actually saying, Lord, I'm happy with whatever you give, everyone seems to pull back. They're like, oh, I kind of like the idea of a long life. I want to live until I'm 80. I want to have enough to survive and be happy. But what Christ is calling us here to do is, is, is realise this deeper battle, which we are part of, that, that he invites us into, to, to actually be part of this redemption of the world, that we would be able to say yes every day, and, and that really deep yes to say, Lord, your will be done. Where there is that deep sinful part of us which is always wanting to say, no, my will be done, my way, I want to be in control. The Spirit of God is calling us into this relationship to see what he has done for us and then for us to be able to go do likewise. And, and really just live your life with open hands. You know, it, it's not about actively pursuing some extreme suffering or whatever. It's, it's simply saying, God, my life's yours. I'm not clinging on to it. That's the thing that... It doesn't make a lot of sense to us and it won't make sense until the end. When we start to see in the glory of the resurrection how all of this has been redeemed by God, I think that's when we'll start to see where our part of it has made sense. Because that was the way it was for Jesus. It wasn't until the resurrection that he could start to realise that was worth it. My sacrifice, my offering has now born fruit, so much more fruit than he could ever have done if he had just stayed doing global speaking to us. And this is where we need to trust to say, God, my life is in your hands and you are going to create something glorious. And whatever that is, you know, whether that means you want me to go and be extraordinary or whether it means you just want me to be hidden and ordinary, your will be done. You can work something through that. Whether that means I live until I'm 90 or whether that means I die tomorrow, I'm surrendered into your hands. And I trust that my yes will achieve more than any of my words or my preaching or my ministry would ever do. That's the journey Christ invites us onto in this last couple of weeks.